Hey. So, I want to start with some articles for the first podcast, but I thought this one was really interesting and very, very hopeful. So, it's basically about the EU and what they're doing to fight climate change. So, the title of the article is EU Smashes 2020 Climate Target Records 34% Drop in Emissions to Lowest Level Since 1990. Total greenhouse gas emissions in the European Union reached their lowest level since 1990, according to official EU data reported this week by the European Environment Agency to the UN. The overall reduction in 2020 greenhouse gas emissions was 34%, compared to the 1990 base year, or 1.94 billion tons of CO2. Prior to the pandemic, the EU had already reduced its emissions by 26% in 2019, and it achieved its 20% target before the lockdown started to impact emission levels. Key drivers that led to emission reductions over the past three decades include the growing use of renewables, the use of less carbon-intensive fossil fuels, and improvements in energy efficiency. Also, winters in Europe have become warmer. All sectors reduced emissions except for transport and refrigeration and air conditioning, although the latter have been decreasing in the last few years. The EU continued to record substantial greenhouse gas emission reductions in 2020, posting an 11% drop compared to 2019. The report revealed that almost all EU member states reduced emissions compared to 1990 and contributed to the overall positive EU performance. Germany and the UK, which withdrew from the EU in February of 2020, accounted for 47% of the total net reductions over the past 30 years. This next article I thought was pretty interesting because I know... Like anytime you see like an electric car, like with the Volvo, and you're talking to your dad, you're like, "Hey, look, an electric Volvo!" And I know you want to get an electric car at some point. So this one is titled "Electric Cars Could Be Made with Plastic from Clunkers," according to new research. Electric cars could be made with plastic from old clunkers, according to new research. Bumpers, carpets, mats, seating, seals, and door casings have been turned into graphene, which is the world's lightest material. Invented by British scientists almost two decades ago. It is set to revolutionize the automotive industry. The metal will increase vehicle strength while reducing weight, improving fuel efficiency, and creating rust-free paint. It will make self-driving cars safer with sensors just one atom thick, enabling detection of obstacles even in difficult weather conditions. The U.S. team collaborated with Ford using a state-of-the-art technique called the flash jewel heating. Ford sent us 10 pounds of mixed plastic waste from a vehicle treading facility. Project leader Professor James Tor of Rice University, Houston, said, It was muddy and wet. We flashed it. We sent the graphene back to Ford. They put it in into new foam composites, and it did everything it was supposed to do. Then they sent us the new composites, and we flashed those and turned them back into graphene. It's a great example of circular recycling. The recycling breakthrough could also reduce landfill waste from over 1.4 billion passenger cars used globally. Ford has, used, has been using up to 60 pounds of polyurethane foam in its vehicles, with about 2 pounds being graphene reinforced since 2018. When we got the graphene back from rice, we incorporated it into our foam in very small quantities and saw significant improvement. Co-author Dr. Albert Kizaltas, a sustainability expert at the motor giant, said, It exceeded our expectations in providing both excellent mechanical and physical properties for our applications. The company first introduced it into under-the-hood components. In 2020, it added a graphene-reinforced engine cover. It also expected, it's also expected to boost hard plastics. A new way. 
Our collaborative discovery with Rice will become even more relevant as Ford transitions to, uh, to electric vehicles. Co-author Dr. Deborah Mielewski, also from Ford, said, When you take away the noise generated by the internal combustion engine, you can hear everything else in and outside the vehicle that much, that much more clearly. It's much more critical to be able to mitigate noise, so we desperately need foam materials that are better noise and vibration absorbers. This is exactly where graphene can provide amazing noise mitigation using extremely low levels. Graphene will also replace lithium-ion batteries, currently a very heavy component of electric vehicles. The study in communications engineering reused the graphene to make enhanced polyurethane for new vehicles. Tests showed the infused foam's tensile strength and low-frequency noise absorption increased by 34 and 25% respectively, with less than 0.1% by weight. And when that new car is old, the foam can be flashed in a graphene again. Plastic in vehicles has increased by an estimated 75% in just six years. In Europe, cars come back to the manufacturer, which is allowed to landfill only 5% of a vehicle. This means that they must recycle 95%, and it's just overwhelming, Professor Torres said. The U.S. shreds up to 15 million vehicles each year, with more than 27 million shredded globally. More, much ends up being incinerated. We have hundreds of different combinations of plastic resin, filler, and reinforcements on vehicles that make the materials impossible to separate, Dr. Mielewski said. Every application has a specific loading slash mixture that most, most economically meets the requirements. Engineered plastics cannot be recycled. Traditional recycling methods are expensive because they require the separation of different types. These aren't recyclables like plastic bottles, so they can't melt and reshape them, Professor Tor explained. So when Ford researchers spotted our paper on flash jewel heating into plastic into graphene, they reached out. Flash jewel heating was developed by his lab two years ago. It packs mixed ground plastic and a coke additive for conductivity between electrodes in a tube. The chemical cocktail is blasted with high voltage. The sudden intense heat reaches nearly 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, vaporizing other elements, leaving behind graphene. It offers significant environmental benefits. The process does not require solvents and uses a minimum of energy. In experiments, the team ground shredder fluff from end-of-life F-150 pickup trucks without washing or pre-sorting the components. Powder heated between 10 to 16 seconds in low current produced a highly carbonized plastic accounting for about 30% of the initial bulk. The rest was outgassed or recovered as hydrocarbon-rich waxes and oils. Lead author Kevin Wiss, a graduate student, believes this could be also be recycled. The carbonized plastic was then subjected to high current flashing, converting 85% of it into graphene while outgassing hydrogen, oxygen, chlorine, silicon, and trace metal impurities. Analysis showed it produced graphene with a substantial reduction in energy, greenhouse gas emissions, and water use when compared to other methods, even including the energy required to reduce the plastic shredder fluff to powder. Graphene was discovered in 2004 by Professor Andre Guillaume and Professor Costa Novosilov at the University of Manchester. It later won them the Nobel Prize for Physics. It is tougher than diamond but stretches like rubber, is virtually invisible, conducts electricity and heat better than any copper wire, and weighs next to nothing. In coming decades, the astonishing material is expected to change almost every aspect of our lives. This next one's about feeling happy at work, so I was curious as to see what it was going to say. So the it is titled, 
Summer Fridays are the key to feeling happier at work. A new poll suggests summer Fridays are the key to feeling happier at work. 59% of 2,000 working adults say their jobs offer summer Fridays, allowing them a short day or a day off, occasionally on Fridays during the season. Over 8 in 10 employees say they benefit from this perk because it makes them feel much happier at work, 85%. The survey, commissioned by Wisetail and conducted by OnePoll, delved into the impact weather may have on productivity, finding that 73% believed it directly impacted how they work. Respondents claim that cool temperatures, 28%, and clear blue skies, 27%, are associated with being the most productive at work, coinciding with 43% who believe they do their best work in the spring. It's no surprise then that 65% prefer working outside when the weather is nice. From getting work done in local cafes, 53%, to rooftops, 48%, and patios, also 48%. Employees shared what weather factors can make them have a bad day at their job with conditions like heavy rain, 25%, and freezing temperatures, 25%, being the root cause of unproductive workdays. Meanwhile, 22% associate snow with having a bad workday. Overall, 68% said the motivation to learn or absorb information at work drops when the weather is poor. Nearly as many, 67%, will turn the brightness of their, their computer screens down if it's gray or darker outside, and 64% said they, they have to take frequent, frequent breaks away from their computer screens when there's overcast. Poor weather conditions are enough for 63% to believe it's excusable for them to take more time completing their, ta their work tasks. Time is also a factor in pe people's productivity. In order to have the best day at work, the average person needs to wake up at 7.30 a.m. while rising an hour later at 8.30 would be considered the worst way to start off the day. 64% noted that daylight saving had affected their productivity in the past, with the majority saying, with the majority 85% saying they feel unproductive when the clock changes. While there are evolving variables to the explanation and reason behind productivity and nice weather, we can correlate better weather with a more positive outlook on the day and overall mood, said Kyle Reichel, product manager at Wisetail. We also know that better moods lead to increased motivation and self-confidence, which all contributes to efficiency levels and productivity. Aside from the workplace, the weather seems to play a role in people's daily lives. The average respondent said they get seven migraines or headaches per year influenced by the weather. Nearly two in three, 63%, said they have struggled with seasonal affective disorder, SAD, before a behavioral disorder where cold gray weather affects vitamin D and dopamine levels. Of those who experience this condition, 80% said it affects the quality of the work they put in at their jobs. Increasing workplace productivity starts with learning which task management tricks work best for you. Continue Reichel. While we can't control the weather, we can control how we tackle our day and adjust for different weather conditions knowing how they affect us. Focusing on one task at a time, taking regular breaks, time blocks on your schedule, and initiating small goals with small objectives are all tricks you might try. Also, try waking up a little bit earlier. As noted in the poll, many people find that waking up before 7.30 a.m. affects their productivity and energy throughout the day. Further, assigning yourself your most challenging tasks that require intense focus at the peak clear-minded time of the day leads to increased productivity and efficiency. Okay, I'm not really sure what this one's going to be about, but it is saying that there is... I'm just going to read the title. Um, so it says, Incredible discovery beneath the southern Amazon relieves urban agrarian society never seen before. So, if one searches 
Casaber culture in a search engine, they won't find much. Maybe they'll see a Wikipedia article for the town of Casaber in Bolivia, less than 10 words long. However, a paper published this week in Nature reveals that down in the Alivio Plain in Bolivia's Llanos de Mojo Savannah in southwest Amazonia flourished an agrarian low-density urban society for 900 years, building hundreds of acres of monumental earthworks, canals, walls, and fortifications, and large pyramids. The Casabre I don't even know how to say it. Culture transformed and lived off the land in few in a in in way few archaeologists and historians believed possible for the Amazon. The sparsely populated region in the north of Bolivia has suffered little disturbance over the years, and since 1960, archaeology has known that extensive evidence of earthworks was to be found in the plain, everything from causeways and mounds to potential artificial islands. However, after working in the area for 20 years, archaeologist Dr. Heiko Prumers led a LIDAR survey to get an idea of the total extent of the civilized area, and has revealed details of a major continental civilization that grew maize and yucca equal to and exceeding at times the size and efficiency of similar areas in medieval Europe. We have got something in the Amazon region that nobody expected, but that we know existed, says Prumers. Now it's obvious that this region of the world, like many other tropical regions like Mexico or Angkor in Cambodia or some cities in Sri Lanka that are located in tropical regions, they are not the green deserts that have been imagined for a long time. Tree scrubbing. For two reasons, an established orthodoxy led archaeologists to believe that the Mayan civilization was uniquely exceptional among tropical forest-dwelling Mesoamerican societies. The first is the immense scale of the Mayan cities, and the second is well is the well-known fact that tropical soils are poor for any kind of centralized food production. Okay, so the so the famous calendar makers aside, the old Orthodox still applied for years to the people further south, in Amazonia, where even poor conditions left them imagined as simple substance farmers of little societal or technological development. With LiDAR light detection ranging, Prumers et al. were able to map the precise contours of a 204 square mile, sorry, 204 square kilometer piece of land without any interference from the trees or marshes, effectively scrubbing away anything that would impede the vision of satellite photo. That was revealed, what was revealed were 24 sites, roughly half of which were unknown all built of raised earthen mounds, including two remarkably large sites of 284 and 778 acres each, 147 and 315 hectares. The scale of the architectural remnants at these sites, which include earthen pyramids that once towered more than 20 meters over the surrounding savanna, cannot be overstated and is on par with that of any society, of any ancient society, wrote Christopher Fisher, a geoanthropologist anthropologist at Colorado State University, Fort Collins, who wasn't involved in the study. The civics ceremonial architecture of these large sediment sites, called Kotako, Kotoka, Kotoka, and Landivar, includes stepped platforms on top of which lie U-shaped structures, rectangular platform mounds, and conical pyramids up to 22 meters tall. 
extending out in a 500 square kilometer area from the center of Kotoka. Long straight causeways connected various raised mounds of smaller scope, suggesting that Kotoka's urbanism sprawled out, but was slightly contained by the low-lying low watered ground. All these settlements are embedded in the human-engineered landscape with a massive water-controlled system designed to maximize food, food surpluses to support the large Kassarbre population, writes Fisher. Who are the Kassarbre? Known to have existed down in Lanos de Mojos from 500 CE to 1400 CE, the Kassarbre culture that take their name from a modern-day town near to where the sites like Kotoka and Landivar were first found. They were chiefly agriculturalists and also great movers of earth. At the same time, the Kassabre developed, we have in the Andes the culture of Tuanuku, a very big imperium that stretched from Chilean coast to La Paz in Bolivia, Dr. Primers explained to Wall in an interview. That's one of the intriguing things we have to resolve in the future, we say, said noting the lack of evidence for contact between Kasabre and Tiwanaku. Of course, there must have been a relationship in some context, but in the archaeological record, there is little evidence of that. They're not hunter-gatherers like some people have maintained until now. They cultivated maize, yucca maybe, so I think we must imagine a type of culture just like in Europe at that time, with the same kind of villages and small cities. Kotoka would very much be that sa- be the same as a medieval city of that time in Europe. It's walled and has a core area with administrative and ceremonial purposes. We are lucky in this sense that this region is very poorly populated in the last 900 years, so there has been very little modern disturbances, said Coombs. Just imagine you are working 20 years in a region like we did, and you have to explain to someone not familiar with archaeology of the region, and they're asking what is special about the, that culture. You'd need an hour to explain it, he said. Now we just show the images and everybody will say, wow, yes, it's obvious that it's something big. The moving of Earth to create these structures was remarkable and on par with some of the greatest earthling societies of the period. The central cityscapes of Landivar and Kotoka were built on a raised platform assembly in Landivar's case by moving 275,000 cubic meters of soil and in Kotoka's with roughly 570,000 cubic meters of soil and about 10 times as much was moved to create Akapana, a similar site to Tiwanaku. Of comparisons, there is only one Cahokia, the pre-Columbian city-state near St. Louis and Missouri, which built raised earthen mounds totaling into the millions of cubic meters. Coca is a very good example to compare with, especially the history of the investigation, because for a long time it was dispelled as the idea of an important regional center. Now we know that it was. It is one of the largest structures ever constructed in the New World, said Prunus. The Katoka site is not as huge as Kohokia, but it's not so far away. As notable as the massive moving of Earth is the complete lack of complete lack within the Casarbre archaeological record of any kind of widespread evidence of stones. They must have had stones, but only for making small tools, Dr. Prunus explained. During our evacuations in almost 10 years, we maybe found one or two kilos of stone, and that stone was imported from the Andes, he said. As for the indigenous population, they are well informed and involved in the project, report, reports Primers. It's fascinating to think that these earth-moving corn farmers 
would survive 900 years, more than three times as long as the current American culture. It clearly wasn't just large earthworks they built, but a strong, enduring foundation, which is now up to people like pruners to try and preserve into the ages. Alright, I think this is going to be the last one. I tried to get some, some European stuff in there, so... European cities are turning rooftops into community and sustainability hubs, a revolution in urban planning. Across Europe, intrepid artists, planners, and architects are transforming the flat, gray rooftops of the continent into lively community hubs. From public par parks to art venues to rainwater catchments and solar farms, there's hardly a bad idea about how to utilize thousands of football fields of underutilized space. The European Creative Rooftop Network connects various organizations in European cities like Barcelona and Ant Antwerp that want to aim high with cultural hotspots and innovative living labs exploring sustainability. Rotterdam has 150 million square feet of rooftop space, and the municipality's program Multifunctional Rooftops is encouraging building owners to green their rooftops and improve water collection or yellow their rooftops by installing solar panels on them. For example, the Lutchpark Hofbogen sits on top of a heritage train station that's being converted into a meandering rooftop park, much like the High Line in New York City. Next weekend, Multifunctional Rooftops is hosting the Rotterdam Rooftop Days Festival that aims to educate people about various potential uses for city rooftops. The festival will be centered on a pair of exhibits, public spaces on various rooftops connected via colored bridges. It's not only Rotterdam and nearby Amsterdam that are looking up. There are chapters of the ERCN in Belfast, Antwerp, Nicosia, Gothenburg, Chemnitz, and Faro. In Barcelona, a group called Coinc Coincidence Coincidences, I think, is building a network of cultural exhibition areas, including concert venues and performance spaces. Nicosa in Cyprus is also seeing a lot of success turning the rooftops into attractions. The top of Stelios Ioannou Learning Center is a turf roof allowing 360-degree vision of the city. At the center, an artificial hill offers a skylight into the library below. 1010 Hall is a rooftop cultural space with a focus on stargazing, not because you can see many stars in Nicosia, but because there's a very big telescope on the roof. Stargazing and astronomy talks are hosted at its small theater. New Hope. For those curious about where to visit some of these revamped rooftops, the ERCN's Rooftopopedia has all of them. For Rotterdam, the conversion of roofs is as much for keeping the city above water as 90% of the municipality is technically below sea level, and the emphasis on water collection is strong. It started in 2008 when they became the first city to offer offer subsidies to buildings to building owners constructing green roofs. A year later, the roof of a 1960s concert called D. Julian finished installing a roof upgrade which included hidden water tanks under stones, paving a public walkway that can collect two thousand dollars to two thousand gallons sorry, two thousand bathtubs of water. Bare roofs by Dark gray concrete play a huge role in the heat island effect of cities, and the more stuff put up there to absorb the heat, the less energy a building will need to cool itself. One could call it the, the next revolution in urban planning. Alright, I think that's all for this one, but I hope you enjoy. I tried to 
get things I thought you would enjoy and some European related stuff because I wanted to get, make sure to include that in some capacity but I'm proud of you and I can't wait to hear from you because I'm like already smiling thinking about talking to you tomorrow or I guess today so 